49 to 59. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but, from, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, It's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Thanks for that reading, Christy. Uh, if you are new or visiting, it's great to have you with us. Let me add my welcome to Ken's. My name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. And as you've heard, we've got to the end of our Term 1 series. We've been working through this section of Luke's Gospel from chapter 10 to 12. Um, and so I'll pray in a moment and we'll look at this passage that's just been read for us. Uh, but let me just add one further announcement. Uh, one that I mentioned last week is that uh, we're looking to run um, a baptism course in the next week or two running up to Easter with the potential of some people getting baptised on Easter Sunday. Um, we already got a couple of people interested. If you have never been baptised, you've never thought about baptism, you'd like to consider it, uh, we'd love you to come along and uh, think through what the New Testament says on that um, step of discipleship uh, declaring publicly your faith in the Lord Jesus. Um, so speak to me or to Ken afterwards if that's something that interests you. But let me pray for us now as we come to God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can draw together this morning. We thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you for all the blessings that we enjoy in this country. And far more, all the blessings that we can have through faith in the Lord Jesus for the sure hope that is ours in him. And we pray that you might help us again this morning to see the right response to him as we uh, reflect on this passage together. Uh, we pray that you'll challenge us afresh, uh, that you'll stir our hearts and minds to respond with continued repentance and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've heard the saying, uh, never discuss religion or politics in polite company or variations thereof. And so perhaps it was surprising uh, that SBS screened the first of two episodes of a reality show on Wednesday night called Christians Like Us. Uh, the show involves 10 so-called Christians living together in a house um, in the Hills District, and being forced to talk about lots of controversial topics together. I say so-called Christians because uh, one of the ten people includes a young uh, Mormon woman, um, but the, the group is such a mixed group. There's a, a victim of serial child abuse. There's a female Anglican priest from Brisbane who's an LGBT advocate. There's a same-sex attracted former Baptist. There's a Roman Catholic scripture teacher 
a uniting church member who has performed hundreds of abortions, and a Coptic Catholic. There are also three more conservative Protestant believers in the Ten, uh, which includes a member of Annandale Anglican Church, a Chinese pastor from Burwood, and a pastor from a church in Western Sydney. And this show has them discussing homosexuality, abortion, child abuse, uh, the homeless, Mormonism, public witnessing, the authority of the Bible, and the future of Christianity, among other topics. And you would think that all those issues uh, would be divisive enough, um, but there is one issue that is far more divisive for our secular culture, and the show actually refused to go there. See, the elephant in the room that was just pushed to the side is, what does Jesus mean for people today, for those in this group, for any Australian? This was something that the producers carefully avoided. And it wasn't for the want of trying on behalf of some of those in the house, uh, two of them in particular, Steve and Assumpter, um, trying to share the gospel as they had opportunity. You see, our personal response to Jesus is far more confronting than any social issue. Um, and the show, as a result, um, looking to create controversy and make headlines, has stayed surprisingly in what we might call the safer topics of abortion and child abuse even. And this allows the producers to make the main narrative about how Christianity is in crisis. Well, you see, the truth about Jesus is that he has always divided people. He's always got strong responses, either for or against. So the big question I want us to ask today as we come to the end of our series that this passage raises for us is, why does Jesus divide people? Why does Jesus divide people? You know, if the Bible can refer to him as the Prince of Peace, as the one who can bring peace with God, why does he always receive such a divided response? Well, I've got two answers to that question this morning. And the first answer is this, because Jesus doesn't allow for any fence sitters. Jesus doesn't allow for any fence sitters. Notice again what is recorded in verses 49 to 53. Jesus speaking says, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family, divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. See, Jesus makes it clear in verse 49 as this section begins that his earthly ministry actually ushered in the judgment of God that will be finalized one day at his second coming. And that opening phrase there, fire on the earth, is a metaphor that's clearly referring to the fire of judgment in this context. It's reinforced throughout this section with this theme of division it keeps coming through the passage. But this is not actually a new theme in Luke's gospel that he suddenly introduced at this stage. Uh, John the Baptist actually pointed out that this would be the result even before Jesus began his public ministry. 
He spoke of Christ as being the one who would cut down trees that didn't produce fruit and that they would be thrown into the fire in Luke 3. He spoke of him being the one who would burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, also Luke 3. But what commencement point is Jesus speaking about when he talks of wishing that the fire had already been kindled, that judgment had begun? Well, it's that very question that Jesus goes to in the next verse. He anticipates it for us in verse 50 when he speaks about a baptism that he has to undergo. Now, he's not speaking about being immersed in water here. Um, He's undergone that actually at the start of Luke's gospel as he commenced his public ministry. But he's speaking about his crucifixion in Jerusalem that he is now heading towards. And it was Christ's ministry to lay down his life for those he had come to save. And he speaks of how that constrains him at this point, or it literally consumes him until that is completed, until he's gone to the cross and been raised to life. There's nothing else that he can focus on. Because you see, with Christ's death and resurrection, not only is an opportunity for salvation made clear, inaugurated, but also the judgment of God is as well. And that's because Jesus is bearing our sin, the punishment that we deserve. And in doing so, if his payment is rejected by us, then we stand condemned already. There is an offer of salvation, but for those who reject it, then we stand under God's wrath. And that's something that's brought out in the Gospels often, uh, most famously perhaps in John 3. Have a look at John 3.18 with me, where Jesus states, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And so you see, as, as Jesus goes to the cross, two things are happening simultaneously. Uh, the offer of salvation goes out to all those who will believe, but the response of those that reject means that they stand condemned, that God's judgment begins. And it's in that sense that Jesus can speak about the fire of judgment being kindled. Now, certainly, that becomes even clearer after his resurrection and then ascension to the Father as the gospel, the good news is preached to all nations. Because as the gospel goes out, of course, some people warmly welcome that offer of forgiveness in Jesus, while others reject that truth. And so both salvation and judgment are unfolding as Jesus is either received or rejected. And for proof that judgment had already begun or that theme is already unfolding, even in his generation, notice that Jesus goes on to highlight the division that he brings in verses 51 to 53. And despite what we've already seen uh, so far, I think verse 51 hits us as a shock as we come to this verse because we're used to emphasizing, as I mentioned in the introduction, that Jesus brings peace. Indeed, he does. He can bring peace with God through payment of our sin. In fact, the first announcement of his birth by the angels, remember in Luke 2, is the angels singing glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And Jesus has pronounced peace in the course of his ministry in chapters 7 and 8, that those who come to faith in him will have peace with the Father. But judgment is not a surprising consequence of his ministry as well. And it's not a contradiction of that mission. Although his death and resurrection will offer forgiveness for those who turn in faith, 
The divided reaction means that he won't bring peace for many people who will reject him. And that will cause division between friends, even within families. And so in verses 52 and 53, he talks about that division, how it would impact families. And he's alluding back to the Old Testament, to Micah 7, 6, where in that passage, Micah refers to these same three divisions, father versus son, mother versus daughter, mother-in-law versus daughter-in-law. In Micah's context, it was God bringing social disintegration and families breaking apart because of the idolatry that was sweeping through the nation. It's a different scenario here. It's a division that's based on people's response to Jesus, whether he is truly the Christ or not. But what he's focusing on is the divided outcome at this point, that again, there is this division. Not only will there be persecution from authorities for those who follow Jesus, but there will be consequences for family bonds. The message is a confronting one, isn't it? It was certainly very confronting for a Jewish society that valued you know, family and community cohesion above almost all else. And here is Jesus saying, well, I'm going to bring division based on people's response to me. Well, as we apply that today, I think we've got to acknowledge that this theme is one that's repeated throughout the New Testament. Uh, the disciples heard this and would continue to tell those who would come to follow Jesus of this cost. And the Apostle Paul, I think, most memorably says it in 2 Corinthians 2 in this way, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And so this message of division, of no allowance for fence-sitters, well, it's no less confronting today for us, is it? Jesus has always produced this black and white response, though. There's never been a grey area with him. He either brings salvation or impending judgment, depending on how people respond. And I know that many of you have felt the pain of family division over faith. Many of you have shared stories about this of children or grandchildren that don't share your trust in Jesus. And it is so hard. Many of you know the disappointment, too, of lost friendships where those who were once really close to you have withdrawn because of your faith in Jesus. But I want to say, as hard as that is, we need to realize that for many believers outside of the Western world, especially coming from other religious backgrounds, it is simply a given that there will be great loss of relationship if they place their trust in Jesus. They find themselves at times cut off from their family altogether. Uh, those from a Muslim background often find such divisions are very final. I had the privilege a number of years ago now to baptise um, a man in our church who had come to faith from a Muslim background. Um, he was studying in Australia just for a short time and then was going to be heading back to the Middle East. He came to faith through the witness of some people in our church and outside of our church. And then he decided that he wanted to get baptised and signify that huge decision that he'd made. And we had to have a private baptism in our church at night because it couldn't be in a public setting because of those students that knew him 
and would immediately report back home of his decision. His life would be in danger. Before he was baptised, he rang up his wife who was back home and explained his decision to follow Jesus and she was initially supportive. Um, But as soon as he finished up his study and left Australia and went back home, he found that it was a very different response from her and from the rest of the family. He was not spoken to for a couple of years by his wife. Um, They then separated and eventually with the pressure of her and her family in particular, they have divorced. He has lost access completely to his children. He now lives back home in a place where he can't own his faith publicly for fear of dying. And so it's very hard even to form friendships, let alone have any Christian fellowship. It's a huge cost for that man. He's counting it to this day. It's a decade on. But that's what it means to follow Jesus sometimes. The gospel brings division between friends, between family members, sometimes even in marriages. And it brings us to a second answer to the question. Why does Jesus divide people? Well, not only because he doesn't allow for fence sitters, but because we have a debt that we can't pay. We have a debt that only he can pay. Have a look at verses 40, uh, 54 to 56. He said to the crowd, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, It's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, It's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. How is it that you don't know? How to interpret this present time. You see, the mention of the crowds here in verse 54 recalls their presence for us. They've been in the background listening all through this chapter. But it also serves in this instance to remind us that Christ often characterizes the crowds as sign seekers. They're always interested in the next miracle, but they're often not really wanting to respond in repentance and faith. They're not wanting to follow Jesus. In chapter 11, he had rebuked the crowds for their inability to recognize the signs in front of them already and said they would get no further signs except for the sign of Jonah, that being his death and resurrection on the third day. And here again, the same is emphasized. Now, as he speaks about the weather, the features that he highlights are particular to Israel. You know, the west wind, it brings moisture inland from the Mediterranean Sea. The south wind brings heat from the Negev Desert. Jesus affirmed they know how to read the signs of the earth and the sky. It's just like we do. We know if there's a lot of darkness in the south, then there's something brewing and it's going to hit us soon. But the key to the tone of his message to the crowds here is his label for them. Hypocrites. They can't interpret his presence. By this, by the word hypocrites, he doesn't mean they're phonies, or deceivers, but they're people who are ignorant of what they should know. It's not that they say one thing and do another, but that they have joined the religious leaders of the nation in rejecting the clear signs of Jesus' ministry, which point to him being the promised Messiah. He has done so much in his teaching and in his miracles already. He's pointed out previously in chapter 7 and 11, um, Luke has that, You know, they've seen the healing, his power over sickness, over evil spirits, even over death. They have heard him preach the good news. But here he's adding another sign, and that of the reality of division. That not everyone will respond positively 
that Christ's mission will bring a great divide. And indeed, it's an anticipation of the judgment on the final day as well. And the question is why so many have missed the signs. But we might ask the same question in our day. Why is it that so many can't interpret Christ's presence and his life and work and his death and resurrection? You see, as we apply this to ourselves, how do you view Jesus today? You know, as you read the Bible, do the signs of his amazing life just leap off the pages of the gospel at you as somebody who is just incredible, the like of which the world has never seen and will never see again? Or do you find yourself unmoved, just dismissive of Jesus, like so much of our culture today? Now, perhaps you saw the 2017 movie, uh, The Case for Christ. Uh, It's the true story that inspired uh, the 1998 book of the same name. It all started back in 1980 uh, when atheist and investigative journalist Lee Strobel applied his skills and journalism and legal skills to attempt to disprove his wife Leslie's newfound faith. It was creating a huge rift in their marriage. That's it. He decides, I'm going to disprove this Christian thing once and for all. And so he set out. But he wrote some time later, as recorded in his book, she invited me to a church where I heard the gospel explained in a way I could understand it. And while to begin with I didn't believe it, I realized that if it were true, it would have big implications for my life. And so I decided to use my journalism experience, my legal expertise, to investigate whether there was any credibility. And for nearly two years, I investigated science and philosophy and history. I read literature. I quizzed experts. I studied archaeology. And on November 8, 1981, I sat down and got out my yellow legal pad and I started writing the for and against, summarizing the evidence that I'd encountered. And I came to the conclusion that it would require more faith of me to remain an atheist than it would be to become a Christian. And so I accepted Jesus. Well, there's somebody that showed integrity, who did the research, who looked at all the signs and considered for himself what it all added up to. And I guess I want to ask you this morning, if you don't know where you stand with Jesus, have you done that work? Or have you at least read Lee Strobel or somebody has done that work for you that you might consider as an adult what it is that Christ has achieved? These signs that his life presents to us of his authority as the son of God that's been sent for us, the unique claims that he makes. And see, that's what Jesus was wanting. He was expecting more from the crowds, from the people that heard and seen him. They got a firsthand eyewitness account. But what if people don't respond? What awaits? Well, notice the final verses, as Jesus states in verses 57 to 59. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I think sometimes when we read this section, we feel like this is just a big diversion. He's gone on to a new topic altogether. But this is closely linked with what he's just said in verses 54 to 56. He's just transitioning from analogies about the weather to this courtroom parable. 
Instead of using the word interpret as he has through this passage, in verse 58, he uses the word judge. Why don't you judge for yourselves? And in doing this, he prepares us for this theme of judgment that's running through this final section. And the parable here assumes a Roman court process, Roman justice, focuses on what would happen in the case of a debt. Sometimes a person could be put into slavery as a way of paying off a debt, but at times they could just be thrown into prison. And then their family members or their friends would have to come up with whatever money was required if they were ever going to be released. They would have to pay every last penny. Often they would have to sell property, whatever they could do to free their loved one. And so that's what's being assumed here. What does Jesus have in view, though, with these comments? What is he meaning? What is the context in terms of our right response to Jesus? Who is he speaking to even? Well, in the first instance, I think the religious leaders of the nation are in view. They're the influencers who have openly rejected Jesus. And they've pointed the people away from him. They were already plotting to have him killed at this point, And they were seeking charges so that they could sit in judgment on him. And eventually, of course, Jesus would be arrested, as we know, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He would be brought before the Sanhedrin or the Council of the Elders. And they would accuse him of blasphemy, of claiming that he was the Son of God. Of course, if he was, then he was going to be sitting, on judgment, sitting in judgment on them. Christ would ultimately judge them and their failure to respond to him. And so here is Jesus in chapter 12 offering them some advice to all indeed who had not believed in him. He urges them to reconcile with him, to settle their debts in this world before God settles them in the judgment to come. Our debt before God is something that we can't repay. And that's why Jesus needed to come for us. That's why he came to earth. That was his mission. And I think more broadly, too, the crowds are in view in verse 54. People were able to judge for themselves the nature of Jesus and his ministry. If they did, they would be able to receive him and be reconciled to God. But unfortunately, as things stood, they too had largely made Jesus their adversary. And they needed to make peace with him before it was too late. And here is a call to settle one's accounts before God. Time is running out for the nation. Not only because there's a final judgment to come, but in the generation of Jesus' time, God was going to deal with his people in the short term. The nation was going to feel God's wrath for their rejection of his son. You see, when Jesus finally arrived in Jerusalem, Luke records in chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, these words. As Jesus approached Jerusalem... And saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So this judgment of God would fall in AD 70. Wipe out much of that generation. As the Romans came and put down a rebellion that had started four years, late, four years earlier in AD 66, they would not leave one stone left on another. The temple would be ripped down, the whole city destroyed. There was an immediate judgment that was coming. 
But that judgment just foreshadowed a far greater judgment on the final day. That God will bring people to account. That their response to his son matters. And as we apply these themes to ourselves today, I guess I want to ask the question again, is our society any better at interpreting Jesus correctly? You know, in all our sophistication, our rational thinking, Australian culture is largely dismissive. Our nation rejects and ignores the remarkable facts of Christ's life and death and resurrection. But there's a problem with that, clearly. The problem is that a lawsuit is in progress, that a writ is being issued and a heavy sentence is impending. And those who ignore Christ's unique authority, his crucial place at the centre of human history, have a debt before God that they cannot repay. And if they face God without their debt being paid for by Jesus, then they stand open before his wrath. And there's nothing at that point that can save them. You see, our response as believers, when we realise those truths, as we think about friends and family members around us who have yet to respond to Jesus, surely is that we want them to hear this warning. I mean, Jesus wanted his generation to hear this and respond. Surely we don't want to respond by packaging Jesus for our culture so that our rebellion seems like a minor topic or of no consequence. And to remove accountability to God for our sin is to remove our need of salvation. What is Jesus saving me from, if not from punishment, from my rejection of him? And I can't appreciate how wonderful God's grace to me is, how powerful it is that he would show mercy on me, a sinner. Not because of anything I've done or will ever do, but simply because of Christ's perfection. And if in our efforts to reach people, we water down the gospel to make it palatable, then we have distorted the very gospel of grace that will bring them life. People need to know their debt. They have to know their debt before God. We have to keep announcing it, whether it's well-received or not. It's the warning that Jesus gives us. And to interpret his ministry rightly, we need to declare it. You know, American pastor and author Mark Dever, who visited our church the other week, uh, notes in his book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, that evangelism is not persuading people to make a decision. It is not proving that God exists or making out a good case for the truth of Christianity. It's not inviting someone to a meeting. It's not exposing the contemporary dilemmas or arousing interest in Christianity. It's not even wearing a badge saying Jesus saves. Some of these things may be right and good in their place, he writes, but none of them should be confused with evangelism. To evangelize is to declare on the authority of God what he has done to save sinners. To warn men of their lost condition, to direct them to repent and to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's hard to do today, isn't it? We're just so averse to that message in our culture. And as we conclude our series in Luke 10 to 12, I know we're finishing on a very confronting note. As we've considered why Jesus 
divides people. And we've seen, firstly, it's because Jesus forces people to make a decision. He doesn't allow for fence-sitters in this world. There's no grey area. You're either for him or you're against him. You're either saved by him or you face him as your judge. And secondly, it's because we have a debt that only he can repay. And that deeply offends our sensibilities. He sets the realities of heaven and hell before us. And he says, without me, you have no hope. We either receive it or we don't. There's just no wriggle room with Jesus. He won't allow for it. But why should there be any? If we've been taking in the signs of who he is, if he is truly the eternal son of God who came to earth to give of his life for ours, who demonstrated his power in amazing miracles day after day, who taught like no one had ever taught. If having rejected all those signs before us and ultimately his death for us, what can be left? He gave his all. Can he expect anything less than for us to respond rightly to him, to consider what he's done and to fall before him in repentance and faith? Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge this morning that the gospel, while being good news, is often not palatable for those who are rejecting that message. And the result is that division follows. There will be those that receive and those that reject. And there's great pain in that. There's pain in that for us personally, as we think about family members, as we think about close friends. The eternal realities of heaven and hell are no light matter. But Lord, we know that while this world keeps ticking, there is time. Time for people to investigate the signs, to be reconciled to you before that great day. To realise that there is a wonderful offer of forgiveness, that hope is held out before us. And if we have received that, Lord, help us to rejoice in that wonderful news, in the relationship that we have with you through that reconciliation that Christ has won for us. But help us too, if we know these truths, to be able to share your gospel with conviction, with a boldness, knowing that people desperately need to hear it. They need to be warned of where they stand and what is to come. Help us uh, not to be those who stay quiet, Help us to see those around us as in desperate need that we may share your wonderful grace that you have opened our eyes to. Lord, help us this week, we pray, to this end. In Jesus' name.